Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, a brief history. Hi, I'm historian Christine Morgan, and welcome to A Brief History. On this episode, we continue the story of Henry VIII from the book London in the Time of Tudors by Sir Walter Besant. In the previous episode, we left off with a description of the funeral held for King Henry VII. Now it's his youngest son, Henry VIII, who gets his turn to make a mark on history. London has now changed its character. The old quarrels and rivalries of Baron Alderman, or Lord of the Manor with Merchant, of Merchant with Craftsman, of Master with Servant, have ceased. The city, like the rest of the country, is feeling the restlessness that belongs to a period of change. At Henry's accession, men were beginning to be conscious of a larger world. Wider thoughts possessed them. The old learning, the old arts, were rising again from the grave. The crystallized institutions, hitherto fondly thought to be an essential part of religion, were ready to be broken up. Even the most narrow city merchant, whose heart was in his money bags, whose soul was to be saved by a trentle of masses, an anniversary, felt the uneasiness of time and yearned for a simpler faith as well as for wider markets across the newly traversed seas. I propose to consider the events of this reign, which were of such vast importance to London as well as the country at large, by subjects, instead of in chronological order as hitherto. I will first take the relations of the city and the king. They began with a manifest desire of the young king to conciliate the city. Evidently, in answer to some petition or representation, he banished all foreign beggars, for example, those who were not natives of London, and ordered them to return to their own parishes. It is easy to understand what happened. The foreign beggars, in obedience to the proclamation, retired to their holes and corners. The streets were free from them for some days. The mayor and sheriffs congratulated them, and then after a decent interval, and gradually, the beggars ventured out again. The difficulty, in a word, of dealing with rogues and vagrants and masterless men was already overwhelming. In the time of Elizabeth, it became a real, a threatening danger to the town. We must remember that one effect of a long war, especially a civil war, which calls out a much larger proportion of the people than a foreign war, is to throw upon the roads at the close of it a vast number of those who have tasted the joys of idleness and henceforth will not work. They would rather be flogged and hanged than work. 
They cannot work. They have forgotten how to work. They rob on the high road. They murder in the remote farmhouses in the winter. And when they grow old, they make for the towns and they beg in the streets. However, Henry greatly pleased the city by his order. And for a time, there was improvement. He then took a much more important step towards winning the affection of the city. He committed Empson and Dudley to the tower. They were accused of a conspiracy against the government, but in reality, they had been the approved agents of the late king, his father. But this it would have been inconvenient to confess. They were therefore found guilty and executed. These unfortunately two willing tools of a rapacious sovereign. Henry offered restitution to all who had suffered at their hands. It was found on subsequent inquiry that six men, all of whom had been struck off the lists for perjury, had managed to get replaced and had been busy at work for Empson and Dudley in raking up false charges against aldermen or in taking bribes for concealing offenses. These persons, as being servants and not principals, were treated leniently. They were set in pillory and then driven out of the city. The loyalty of the city showed itself on the day of the coronation when the king, with his newly married queen, rode in magnificent procession from the tower to Westminster, where the crowning was performed with a splendor which surpassed that of all previous occasions. On St. John's Eve, 1510, the king, disguised as one of his own yeomen, went into the city in order to witness the finest show of the year, the procession of the city watch. He was so well pleased with the sight that on St. Peter's Eve following, he brought his queen and court to Cheapside to see the procession again. Quote, the march was begun by the city music followed by the Lord Mayor's officers in party-colored liveries, then the sword-bearer on horseback in beautiful armor, preceded by the Lord Mayor, mounted on a stately horse, richly trapped, attended by two pages on horseback, three pageants, Morris dancers, and footmen. Next came the sheriffs, preceded by their officers, and attended by their pages, pageants, and Morris dancers. Then marched a great body of demi-lancers in bright white armor on stately horses. Next marched a division of archers with their bows bent and shafts of arrows by their side. Next followed a party of pikemen in their corslets and helmets. After them, a body of halberdiers in corslets and helmets. And the march was closed by a great party of billmen with helmets and aprons of mail and the whole body, consisting of about 2,000 men, had between every division a certain number of musicians who were answered in their proper places by the like number of drums, with standards and ensigns as veteran troops. This nocturnal march was illuminated by 940 cressets, 200 whereof were defrayed at the city expense, 500 at that of the companies and 240 by the city constables. The march began at the conduit at the west end of Cheapside and passed through Cheapside, Cornhill, and Leadenhall Street to Aldgate, whence it returned by Fenchurch Street, Gracechurch Street, 
Cornell, and so back to the conduit. During this march, the houses on each side of the said streets were decorated with greens and flowers wrought into garlands and intermixed with a great number of lamps. End quote. There is no more pleasant page in the whole of history than that which relates to the first years of King Henry's reign. He was young, he was strong, he was married to a woman whom he loved. He was tall like his grandfather, King Edward, and of goodly countenance like his grandmother, Elizabeth Woodville. He was a lover of arts like his father, and of learning like his grandmother, Margaret, Countess of Richmond. He was brave like all his race. He was masterful and became a king as well as a tutor. He was skillful in all manly exercises. Add to all this that at the time of his accession, he was the richest man in Europe. This accomplished prince, according to Hollinshed, used even in his progresses to exercise himself every day in shooting, singing, dancing, wrestling, casting the bar, playing the recorders, the flute, the virginals, or writing songs and ballads and setting them to music. His songs are all principally amorous. He wrote anthems, one of which is extant, and the words are taken from the Song of Solomon. His verse is melodious and pretty. This quote is from a song of constancy. Quote, Green groweth the holly, so doth the ivy. The winter's blasts blow never so high. As the holly groweth green and never changeth hue, so I am, ever hath been, unto my lady true. As the holly grows green with ivy all alone, whose flowers cannot be seen and green wood leaves be gone. Now unto my lady promise to her I make. From all other only to her I me betake. Another song which became so popular, Pastime with Good Company, the song was actually taken by Latimer as a text for a sermon before Edward the Sixth, Henry the Eighth's son. Quote, Youth must have some dalliance of good or ill some pastance. Company methinks then best, all thoughts and fantasies to digest. For idleness is chief mistress of vices all. Then who can say but mirth and play is best of all? At the outset, there was nothing but feasting, jousts, feats of arms, masks, devices, pageants, and mummeries. At the feasts, the king was lavish and free of hand. At the tilting, the king challenged all and won the prize. At the masks and mummeries, he was the best of all the actors. At the dance, he was the most graceful and the most unwearied. There are long pages in contemporary history on this festive and splendid life at the court, when as yet all the world was young to Henry, and no one had been executed except Empson and Dudley. The following extract from Hollinshed shows the things in which he gloried and the nature of a court pageant. Quote, 
Then there was a device or a pageant upon wheels brought in, out of the which pageant issued out a gentleman richly apparelled that showed how in a garden of pleasure there was an arbor of gold wherein the lords and ladies, much desirous to show pastime to the queen and ladies, if they be licensed so to do. He was answered by the queen, how she and all others there were very desirous to see them and their pastime. Then a great cloth of arras that did hang before the same pageant was taken away, and the pageant brought more near. It was curiously made and pleasant to behold. It was solemn and rich, for every post or pillar thereof was covered with gold. Therein were trees of hawthorn, eglantine, rosiers, vines, and other pleasant flowers of diverse colors, and other herbs, all made of satin, damask, silver, and gold, accordingly as natural trees, herbs, and flowers ought to be. In the arbor were six ladies, all apparelled in white satin and green, set and embroidered full of H and K of gold, knit together with laces of gold and damask. All of their garments were replenished, and glittering spangles gilt over. On their heads are bonnets all opened at the four quarters, covered with flat gold. In this garden was also the king, and five with him, apparelled in garments of purple satin, all of cuts with H and K. Every edge garnished with gold, every garment full of posies, made of letters of fine gold and bullion as thick as they might be, and every person had his name in like letters of massive gold. Their hose and cape and coats were full of posies with H and K. When time was come, the said pageant was brought forth into presence, and then descended a lord and a lady by couples, and then the minstrels, which were disguised, also danced, and the lords and ladies danced, that it was a pleasure to behold. The pageant was then conveyed to the end of the palace, there to tarry till the dances were finished, and so to have received the lords and ladies again. But suddenly... The rude people ran to the pageant, and ripped, teared, and spoiled the pageant, so that the Lord Steward nor the head officers caused them to abstain, except that they should have fought and drawn blood, and so was this pageant broken. Then the king with the queen and the ladies returned to his chamber, where they had a great banquet, and so this triumph ended with mirth and gladness." End quote. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of A Brief History and for supporting the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. I hope you'll tune in in two weeks when we have a brand new episode as we continue discussion of Henry VIII's reign, according to Sir Walter Besant. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty. 